Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen, remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, 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 of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food service. The year is 1989. And even though men and women can't be friends, they can be podcast hosts. The film, When Harry Met Sally. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where we are endeavoring to find the best films of all time. We have made our way through the AFI Top 100. We have culled that down to 40. A lot of people agree, a lot of people disagree, but this is part of the show. We are trying to find the films that really represent the best of cinema, and we've opened it up so much larger in our second season, where we are looking at different genres of films. We've just come off of Fucked Up Families, and we are entering into a brand new miniseries that I have been looking forward to since we started talking about this season, which is Couple Goals, Amy. Like, this is... All the movies that are about good couples, bad couples. I mean, we're we're going to get a little bit of our, our romantic comedy on here. We are. We are. We're going to go across the board of coupledom for good, for bad, for dramatic, for the laughs. And I'm so glad that we're going to start with this film, which to me, when we first began our entire whole show, Unspooled, I was like, can't wait till we get to the When Harry Met Sally episode. What do you mean When Harry Met Sally isn't even already on the list? I was so excited to watch it. And then... Last night, before I hit play, I had this moment of what if it's not as good as I remember? What if this movie doesn't age well? We'll find out. I don't want to tell you how I felt until we get into the episode, but there was a nervousness because we've talked about it so much and I realized I haven't seen it in years. I mean, when was the last time that you saw this film? Oh, gosh. Before this, probably five years ago. But I do want to say, if, you, if you've turned against it, then you're right. Men and women cannot be friends. <laughs> well, I'm going to save it for after uh, we unspool it. But, uh, <laughs> I w- but I will tell you what you have to look forward to in the coming weeks on the show. Uh, first of all, we have uh, 
Chungking Express coming up next week. That's on uh, January 21st. And then we celebrate Groundhog Day by watching Groundhog Day, another film that I think is a very easy add to the best films of all time list. I mean, I know you may be not think that, or where do you fall in the Groundhog Day equation? Well, it is the first Michael Shannon on cinema, isn't it? I okay. mean, you know how I feel about that, man. I do indeed. There you go. <laughs> and it's and odd I, that you lead as calling it a Michael Shannon film. That shows you my heart. I love that actor <laughs> so much. Anytime he's on screen, a movie is automatically amazing. And then we're going to be following up Groundhog Day with a really twisted, perverse little film that used to be on the AFI list and got kicked off. That is A Place in the Sun with Montgomery Cliff mm. and Elizabeth Taylor and Shelley Winters, and oh, this movie is a treat. And then after that, we're doing a movie that is also incredibly near and dear to our hearts and that people uh, who listen to the show have been calling for as well. It's something we have to put up for consideration. The one and only eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. And then we go into Love and Basketball and Brokeback Mountain. And then we go to you to pick your favorite couple goals film. It's a good couple. It could be a bad couple. Whatever you want. All I know is, based on the picks that we've had so far, I have supreme faith in our audience to pick something that is going to be very surprising to me. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I'm very curious what it's going to be. I mean, I'm guessing it won't be The Notebook, but I will say, having recently rewatched The Notebook, that movie is still, I think, very effective. Well, this is the interesting thing because... You and I, when we started talking about couple goals, we were going to maybe just do only romantic comedies. And I think there's something about looking at this list and going like, oh, I want that one on the list. And I want that one on the list. You can get so connected to these like wonderful couples. I think that in many respects, you know, if it's 10 Things I Hate About You, if it's Harry Met Sally, whatever age you came up at, there is a movie that represents like how I think you view male and female relationships or just, I should say, couple <laughs> relationships. Um, now you got me wishing that our listeners will pick Cruel Intentions. Well, look, I'm not saying you should, but why not? I mean, I was even saying, like, why not pick uh, Blue Velvet? We could get Blue Velvet on here. I mean, there, there's couples in there. Uh, or Blue Valentine. Why don't we just do all blues? I mean, there's so many ways you can go. Uh, I know Amy is rooting for the breakup with Vince Vaughn. Uh, so <laughs> we will see. Uh, but get those votes in. Uh, start chatting about it. And we cannot wait to see it. And I cannot wait to, Amy, unspool this film with you. The year is 1989. Microsoft Office, a suite of basic Office programs, is released, including Word, PowerPoint, and Excel. Thousands of students occupy Tiananmen Square, protesting for democracy and ending in a massacre. 5,000 miles away, protests on either side of the Berlin Wall bring about the collapse of the East German government and the Berlin Wall itself. George H.W. Bush replaces Ronald Reagan in the White House. The most popular Christmas gifts are Tetris, Sega Genesis, and the Nintendo Game Boy, which the Game Boy and the Tetris, they go together. You can't just, like, get Tetris on a board game. I mean, you could, but that's not what people are doing. Um, this year's movies include Batman, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Do the Right Thing, and today's film, When Harry Met Sally. Let's take a listen to a clip. You realize, of course, that we could never be friends. Why not? What I'm saying is, and this is not a come on in any way, shape, or form, is that men and women can't be friends because the sex part always gets in the way. That's not true. I have a number of men friends and there is no sex involved. No, you don't. Yes, I do. No, you don't. Yes, I do. You only think you do. 
You're saying I'm having sex with these men without my knowledge? No, what I'm saying is they all want to have sex with you. They do not. Do too. They do not. Do too. How do you know? Because no man can be friends with a woman that he finds attractive. He always wants to have sex with her. So you're saying that a man can be friends with a woman he finds unattractive? No, you pretty much want to nail him too. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? When Harry Met Sally. It is directed by Rob Reiner and written by Nora Ephron. Um, it is a comedy, a romantic comedy about Harry Burns and Sally Albright, two people who meet in 1977 just after their college graduation and then spend immediately 18 hours in a car driving and bickering all the way from Chicago to New York before saying goodbye forever, they think. Their theory, or really Harry's theory, is that men and women cannot be friends. And if they could, they these guys really don't have anything in common anyway. But over the next 12 years, Harry and Sally get their hearts broken by other people. They become friends. And eventually, after years and years of conversations and disagreements and karaoke songs, they just fall in love. And it's lovely. Um, when Harry Met Sally stars, of course, Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan, it also has Bruno Kirby and Carrie Fisher as their best friends who also wind up getting together. The movie came out on July 14th, 1989. And I have to say, when I took that date and I rewound it back, the number one song on the charts was so perfect that, Paul, I honestly got really, really freaked out. Ooh. It's a ballad all about the bond between two people who really know each other. It's by Simply Red, and it is called If You Don't Know Me By Now. Amy, I have to say that Simply Red holds a very special place in my heart because my mom was really into Simply Red. And I don't know why, but it kind of always creeped me out because the albums, I felt like they were like, in my mind, like sex albums or something like that. I didn't know. It just felt weird that my mom was like putting on. My mom never listened to music. And so when she got into Simply Red, it was like, it was shocking, like that she was even listening to music. I just, I have a weird, like, <laughs> I, like I can see the, like the vinyl cover of it. I'm like, oh, it gives me the chills. I feel like I may have walked in after my parents did have some sort of like, you know, private sexual time and that album was out. I feel like there's something burned in there. I don't know. I can't go deeper on that. Um, yeah, I, I understand that feeling. I, maybe we had similar mothers. My mother only listened to Celtic and folk. And then oh, when wow. she suddenly got into REM, I was beyond confused, beyond <laughs> confused. But I am curious with your knowledge of Simply Red, are the fans of Simply Red called simpletons or are they Ooh. called redheads? I mean, I would take redheads. Or maybe are they called Reds in an homage to Warren Beatty's classic film? Uh, but, you know, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> did did they have that much of a fan base? I mean, I don't know if Simply Red had that beehive community that Beyonce has. Um, but maybe they did. They had a number one song. So at least that's a start. I want to just jump into, we'll talk about the movie. But while we're talking about music, I want to talk about Harry Connick Jr. Because that's the first thing that you hear in this film. And... I had a theory last night. I was like, would Harry Connick Jr. be as successful if he wasn't attached to this movie? And I wanted to throw that out to you because part of me felt like 
his career kind of skyrocketed because of this movie. Like, this is another CD that was in my house that I heard a million times. He was this voice, a classic kind of a voice doing like a Sinatra-esque thing. And he really exploded it, even as an actor, too. I mean, do you think that this movie, because of its enormous popularity, actually launched Harry Connick? Wow. Yeah, you know, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to uh, get yelled at by... The Harry Hive is that what yeah that that is the Harry oh, the Harry holes yeah. yeah 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 but my un, my understanding of Harry Connick Jr. Mm-hmm. is he's a handsome guy with a good voice who sings old songs which seems like a job a lot of handsome guys with good voices could do right, right. so what do you do to raise above the pack if you're a handsome guy who sings other people's songs yeah you I guess you'd have to have this movie otherwise who would pay attention to you and wasn't he so young at the time he was only like twenty. When yeah, this movie came I out? mean, he basically had this career that was started with this album. I mean, his reputation was growing. Um, and this is when Rob Reiner said, hey, can you do these standards for us? And this album achieved double platinum status in the United States. He won his first Grammy Award for Best Jazz Male Vocal Performance. And then the next year, he's in Memphis Bell uh, about the B-17 Flying Fortress bomber crew. Uh, And he releases two albums the next year, an instrumental jazz album, and then like another album of standards, and they both go double platinum. Uh, You know, and he even uh, added a song to a film we just did, Godfather 3. And he was nominated for both an Academy Award and a Golden Globe, which was crazy. So he really, this really bolstered his career. I mean, his career starts at Harry Met Sally, I believe. I mean, this explains why I've always been a little confused that he's so young. Right. Because he seems like just this veteran stalwart of entertainment. And then he shows up in like Bug with Michael Shannon, directed by William Friedkin, with a very good Ashley Judd, a movie that I love a lot. And I'm like, Harry Connick Jr. is young and hot. And it always confuses me to relearn this. I mean, Harry Connick Jr., I have a connection to him. And I think it was because he was one of these guys, kind of like a Bon Jovi, where you know, his music isn't offending anybody. It feels fun. And he's he's just got a good effortless nature to him. Like even when he's playing that bad guy in that Sigourney Weaver movie, remember that serial killer movie where he like kills women in like a bathroom stall? Do you remember that? Oh, gosh. No, when you said bad guys with Sigourney Weaver, I immediately thought of that movie with um, the werewolf from Twilight. Okay. No, this was called Copycat. Um, And he was in uh, it's Holly Hunter and Sigourney Weaver is a good movie. At least I remember it as being a good movie. But like he he just had an easygoing personality. I think like when you do standards. Is he the villain? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's the criminal. Oh, I think that's kind of funny. Like because if he's a guy who does standards and therefore copies other movie that he's the villain (laughs) of a guy called Copycat. That kind of feels like he was set up by all the other old guys who sound like Sinatra who were mad because they felt like they were in line. But then this young hotshot comes in, blows them all, all out of the water. I'd like to see that movie like. The, the the top gun of being the next Frank Sinatra? Well, you know, it was interesting. Somebody said to me over the holidays uh, about the Rat Pack. They're like, do you consider Frank Sinatra an actor or a musician? And I had this conversation with uh, my wife. I was like, what do you think? And she immediately walked away from me because she doesn't care about this sort of stuff. But I continued the conversation <laughs> in my head. And there is something about someone who does standards uh, or that kind of performing where it is... It's almost like stand up with music. There's a there's a real personality that has to come out. Like you just can't get up on stage and sing. Like I, you know, one of the things I always think about was like seeing Weezer, who I I loved Weezer so much. 
And Rivers Cuomo, you know, basically didn't look at the crowd, head down, just kind of like huddled up in a ball. It was still a great concert, but there was no connection there. And I've seen a lot of uh, great musicians who don't connect with the audience. But then you look at somebody like a Billy Joel or an Elton John who are incredibly like their music kind of forces them to engage the audience a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, and maybe I'm keeping it in a very small sec, but I, I think that, you know, a Barbara Streisand, uh, all these people can kind of traverse both sides because their performance on stage is often like, like, uh, like acting, it, you know, like it is a, it's a fuller thing. So I think that's why Harry Connick makes this kind of giant transition. I mean, now he's a talk show host or he was a talk show host for a limited period of time. I like your analogy a lot. And now we're getting incredibly far away from the film, but it has me thinking that then I wish there, there's this one type of scene then that I wish was better. If, if acting is a quality that can channel into a good lounge singer act, which is, aren't there like a gazillion movies where like boy meets girl, girl meets boy. They're like, Oh, I I have a little show. Come see my show. And so they go to like a basement somewhere in Manhattan. Oh, you're just setting up La La Land. There's a piano. They're singing a standard. And you're always like, is this really that great? That's how I always feel. I'm like, it's just a standard. Who cares? You know, I think a good standard is good. And I think this movie has a tremendous restraint by not putting him in the movie. The fact that they did not go to see Harry Connick perform in a little basement in New York City at one point in the film makes it just a step above. Um, probably they got him after no, the movie was completed. I'll tell you, I'll tell you why Harry Connick Jr. Is, is not in this movie and why that scene doesn't happen. It's because... If you walk into a lounge and there is Harry Connick Jr. singing a song, you don't wind up with Billy Crystal. <laughs> well, okay. There is nobody more attractive than Billy Crystal in this movie. They've set up the world where Billy Crystal is the best man. Okay. Well, this is an interesting point of view. So I said to you at the beginning of the show that I didn't know if this movie would hold up. And I was nervous about it. And from the minute it started, I realized not only does it hold up, for me, and this may be a days and confused for me where it's like, it's so ingrained in me. I can remember full sections of dialogue. Like I feel like this and Beverly Hills Cop 2 and Running Scared, I can remember like large chunks of dialogue from because I watch it so many times and it informed me so much about like relationships. And obviously these are like, this is a heterosexual relationship, but I think that it it is really a movie about Yes, male and female relationships, but really about, you know, how kind of opposites attract and 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 that kind of push pull between someone who's your friend and someone who is your partner. And I just think this movie kind of warped me. But if any movie was to warp me, I'm glad it was this one. I may have had a couple of weird things because of it, but it definitely imprinted on me. This movie twilighted me. I was Jacob. I was a werewolf. I was imprinted uh, here by this movie. I mean, wh- where does this movie fall for you? Yeah, same. I mean, to think about it, like, if you, when we've watched older movies, we've had that thing where we've been kind of making fun of how people get married immediately. They're like, yeah. I just met you. I like your spark. Let's get married on Tuesday. Wonderful. Hope my ex-husband doesn't show up to protest. <laughs> and, you know, Nora Ephron, who wrote this film, you know, she kind of comes from that background. Like, her parents wrote old romantic comedies. They wrote a Hepburn and Tracy comedy, um, Desk Set. You know, oh, so she that. grew up in a world that had written one kind of romance. And then she ends up writing, I think, a romance that defines how actual people have lived their lives, you know, want to live their lives and have lived it ever since. This idea of your partner isn't just this great guy that sweeps you off your feet in a week. He is your best friend. In a way, I think we've put a lot of pressure on the romantic relationship to be everything. Your yes. partner has to be literally everything in your world. 
But also, I mean, I like it a little better than the alternative. Where your well, partner's like, a dude you like a lot, and y'all have babies. I don't, I don't know. There's so much in this film that is so specific and good. And I think it's used as a litmus test of romantic comedies. We hear When Harry Met Sally all the time. Mm-hmm. But so few films follow this pattern. I think what this film has been distilled down into, and I don't want to worry about that, but I just want to kind of talk about it here at the top, is they have to fight and then they get together. And what this movie does is like, they they don't really fight. They're just, they're different, right? They're like, and they challenge each other and they pick at each other. And it's not, Like, he's a slob and she's super OCD. Like, she's got quirks. He's got quirks. And and yes, when we first meet him out of college, he's a little bit more cocksure. But he's not like, he doesn't really change, right? They don't, they both don't really change more to the fact that they realize that, that they are right for each other. Does that make sense? I'm trying to like parse it out and say like, I think that we focus so much on they don't get along, they don't get along, they don't get along. Now they are the, in love. And here it's like we watch them slowly become friends, but that animosity, that edge that they both have never really leaves them. They are the same people. I just think that we've distilled it in the wrong way. We've taken the wrong lessons from this film. I wonder, I mean, watching it this time, I noticed one you know how, yes, it is kind of like an insular world where the only thing these two these two people talk about is how they feel about relationships with other people, mm-hmm. with people they know, you know, what's going right, what's going wrong. And they don't talk about like, you know, their jobs. I mean, the idea that Billy Crystal is like a political consultant, yes, I wrote something this he down. mentions very briefly. Yes. Like, I don't even know who would really want Billy Crystal as a political consultant. He's like so negative all the time. I can't imagine him being like, Here's how we can win. He doesn't seem particularly crafty. But, but I, what, can you imagine him like as a James Carville kind of figure? No, but this is why I love this movie. She's a reporter. He's a political consultant. It makes no fucking difference in this film at all. And you're right. Because you, can you picture a version where their careers take center stage? Yes. Then it'd be like she knows something about his candidate. Does yes. she support it or not? It, it, we've we've gotten so messed up in weighing down romantic comedies with so much extra baggage. And what we really are seeing here is snapshots of a relationship, a friendship, a a partnership, whatever it is. And the fucking job has nothing to do with that because what we're, what we're seeing them balance is like the real stuff. And I, I agree with you. Yes. They're not talking about their jobs. They're not talking about anything but relationships, but by talking about relationships, they also are finding out what, each other needs and wants, which I think is something, I don't know. I've been in a relationship for 15 years. I'm still figuring out what I need from a relationship and, and how I can be a better partner to my wife. And and I think she's doing the same thing. It's like, it's a constantly evolving process, you know, and uh, it's not always hard fought, but it is these larger conversations and kind of wrestling with this sort of stuff. So that's why I think it's so cool that, yes, we never see him on the campaign trail. We never, the only time we get like a, a section of her reporting was like in that great scene with Bruno Kirby and Carrie Fisher, where he kind of, you know, she insults Jimmy Breslin and he's like that. I love Jimmy Breslin. You know, it's like, but that that's it. It's like, it's so far removed. I love it. I love it for that. It's true. And I love it because there is no dumb contrivance keeping them yes. apart. You know, there is no like, oh, but she mistakenly thinks he's married to somebody else. Or, oh, no, there's um, a baby leopard they have to take care of. Yeah, there's no, it's just, 
yeah, it's natural. It's mm-hmm. so natural. It's lovely. I think you're right. I didn't think about that. Exactly. I mean, if anything, it's it's about a word that I don't even remember they use in this film. If chemistry. You know, mm-hmm. it's just about showing you what chemistry looks like and showing you what chemistry doesn't look like. You know, the scene you were just talking about where they go on that awkward date. You know, we have an example of like, here's what it's like when you just don't really want to talk to somebody, when there's just no spark. Yes. Harry, you and Marie are both from New Jersey. Really? Where are you from? South Orange. Haddonfield. Oh, I love that scene. I was in that scene. I was set up on a date with a friend's friend, and I wound up going out with the friend. And that set me up. <laughs> and uh, I remember that date. It was just like, it. there is such... Because you also know what you want, that other person. Like, there is a contrivance. I think this movie, you know, the, at, at its core, there is this uh, probably a negative point of view that probably uh, seated in our society a little bit more than it should have. Like, can men and women be friends? And and this movie is wrestling with that topic because at the end of the day, yes, they become friends, but they don't because they actually become a couple. Yes, mm-hmm. they were friends on that path. And I would say that most of the people that I've dated have had that same, you know, that same kind of uh, build to a certain degree, uh, I guess. Yeah. Uh, well, and, here, and here's where I'll disagree with you okay. about something small, which is that I do think they both grow separately. And I think one of the ways we really see that in Billy Crystal's character is that in that stretch where he thinks maybe they are just friends because mm-hmm. he's not sure. Yes. She might want to be a little bit more than friends or she's aware of it. You know, she's a little nervous mm-hmm. to tell him that she has a date. You know, she, right. and then when he yes. says that's fine. I think he is fine with it and fine having her be a friend because he's trying to grow. He's trying to be a different version of himself. He's the one who said they couldn't be friends. And now I think he's enjoying a world where maybe he's a better person than he thought he was. Okay. Well, this this is great. I, there's so many things I want to talk to you about. And I want to forgive me for going backwards for a second and then go forwards and meet your point. First of all, you said in a world where Billy Crystal is the most attractive man. And there is something amazing about films of this era, TV shows of this era, where, yes, you can have a funny, likable person. And especially, uh, you know, as a as a male comedian who acts, uh, it's nice to feel like you don't always have to be Matthew McConaughey, right? And I think that that's what we've kind of gotten into, this role of they are, you know, this... And, and Meg Ryan defined my, like, what I think is beautiful. Like, I, like, literally... I remember her outfits and her hair and she's just perfection uh, everywhere. Uh, like, but it's, I, like I will this. say really quick. Yeah. If a Billy Crystal, if I was single and a Billy Crystal with that much charm walked up to me and wasn't Billy Crystal, cause that would yeah. be weird, but was like just a different yeah. person. Um, absolutely. Any, like, I think that that's just a no brainer. You don't need like a dumb, uh, like a boring McConaughey versus a, a Billy Crystal. That's would not you even, even a like, would you even like that Billy Crystal with his uh, tucked in, his tucked in button down in his jeans. There, there's a scene oh in God. that sharper image where he is his tucked in button down. I was looking, I was like, belt, white socks, sneakers. I was like, <laughs> yeah, man, go Seinfeld for it. doing it too. I know. Seinfeld came I know. out this year. Although I will say GQ uh, did a did an article where they ranked all 32 of Harry's outfits. Uh-huh. And when they ranked them all, really, they thought most of them were bad. It wasn't until they got to like 27 or 28 that they were like, this is somewhat passable. Like The sweaters are obscene. 
Yeah, yeah. Their number one one was his um, white cable knit sweater, which yeah. is just a. It's just lead, leading into the Knives Out sweater. I guess everybody loves a white cable knit sweater. I, mean, I would never own one because I would ruin it in a day. Oh, I've, I've done Godspeed. that. I have a white cable knit. People really? loved it. People loved it. Do you keep it, it clean? How? I mean, I it, no, because I fucking ordered coffee one day and it exploded when I tried to put the straw in it. And I wasn't even, I was trying to be so careful and it just, like, I got a, a, just a pop and it was done. Um, yeah. Maybe that's why people like white cable net sweaters is it's not so much about the sweater. It's about the idea that it imbues the wear with a certain level of responsibility. Ooh, I like and that. And awareness. I like that, that a you, lot. And, and it probably says you have the money to buy another sweater. <laughs> By the way, I did buy another sweater because I was like, God damn it, I only got two <laughs> two wears out of this. I like it too much. All right, let me... Don't get me started on women in white pants. Oh, oh my gosh. Uh, well, my wife is all in white all the time. Here is what I want to now bring back. And you've set up a couple things that I was waiting to get to. Nora Ephron, I love her. And I think that she writes amazingly... Uh, well thought out characters and and I, I just I am a fan I am a I am a big fan but I think what makes this movie go beyond a typical Nora Ephron film is how much Rob Reiner played a part in developing the script with her because this was a story about Rob Reiner Billy Crystal is Rob Reiner and Rob Reiner has said as much in the sense that he was going through divorce he was pessimistic he was neurotic a divorce and- from Penny Marshall. Yes. And 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 there's something about Harry's character. And this is what I think is the crux of the whole film. He is a human being because when we meet him at one point, he's looking forward to getting married. He's not being like he's not being like um, led into it. Like he literally is like, I am done. I am happy. I want to do this next thing. And it's then it's like kind of gnawing at Meg Ryan, you know, because she's in a point where she's trying to find that as well. And then when she leaves, the way that he plays that, the way that he reacts, and the way that you see him alone in that apartment throwing cards into the hat, just living that bachelor life, which is not as great as it's set out to be. Because I think in my mind, I remembered him as like sleeping with a lot of women. But he is depressed. And which he, really, he does. He does sleep yes, with he a does. lot of women. Yeah. But, but he does it in a way where it's like he talks about a bad date and he's like, yeah, well, I slept with her. But in the movie now, I think too much energy would be put on the sleeping with women, mm-hmm. whereas we really are seeing the emotional toll it's taking. It's not that sleeping with women aren't isn't filling him up, and he's not even being, uh, he's not even pretending it is. And that humanity, because it happens so early in the film, really grounds this character from being back to what I think this movie has been diluted into this kind of arch. Men and women can't get along. I just want to fuck you. Like, da, 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 da. like he is a human being. And then they bring it back at the end when he sees his wife in Sharper Image and just crushed. And it's like, oh, right. Like there. And I think that 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 character and I don't want to take anything away from Nora Ephron because I think Nora Ephron is a genius. But I think that this combination between Rob Reiner literally going through this and being there as a director to help guide that and actually capture that feeling, kind of the way we were talking about Francis Ford Coppola in Godfather 3, kind of exercising his own demons about, uh, you know, the death in his family. There's something very organic and very natural there that I feel like is makes this movie pop. And it's it's a spine that I never saw until last night. I like that because... In a way, when you frame this as a movie about humanity, but then also about depression, 
it becomes less about male-female and more about the conversation they're having from the very beginning, which is, what is it like when you're a relentless optimist who can't admit even when you're feeling down? You know, right. when you're the Meg Ryan yeah. who like, you know, this, I mean, this is how she breaks her divorce to her friends. Joe and I broke up. What? When? Monday. You waited three days to you tell Joe's us? Joe's available? Well, for God's sakes, Marie, don't you have any feelings about this? She's obviously upset. I'm not that upset. We've been growing apart for quite a while. But you guys were a couple. You had someone to go places with. You had a date on national holidays. I said to myself, you deserve more than this. You're 31 years old. And the clock is ticking. No, the clock doesn't really start to tick until you're 36. God, you're in such great shape. Well, I've had a few days to get used to it, and uh, I feel okay. Good. Then you're ready. What is that personality like when you combine it with somebody who always sees the negative side of things and will, and is willing to go into the darkness? Because I think sometimes humans absolutely have to go into the darkness that she avoids and he dwells in. So it's well, you lay about it, uh, that as much as male-female. Well, he, he says it. It's it's the thesis statement of the film. Within like the first two minutes, he's like, I can go dark. I read the last pages of my books because have you thought about what it's like to die? Like he is there. I just want to play a clip of Rob Reiner just talking about his uh, his relationship to the character too, just as we're here. When Harry met Sally, uh, that was based on my experiences as a single person. Uh, after being married for 10 years and being thrown back into the dating world and being and, and for 10 years I was making a complete and utter mess of my personal life and I thought, well, this has got to be the basis of something here. There's got to be a movie in here somewhere. And I met with Nora Ephron about another project and she didn't like that other idea and I said, well, I'm f- f- noodling around with an idea of doing a relationship about uh, a man and a woman who are coming off of long-term relationships. They become friends and they worry about whether or not if they have sex, it's going to ruin the sh- friendship. They have sex, and it does ruin the friendship, and then how they ultimately can get back together. And she said, okay, great, let's go. So we started working with uh, Andy and I, and, and, and Nora started working on this together. And uh, I would just tell her my experiences, and Andy would tell her his experiences. Nora threw in her experiences, and we tried to craft what we, what we initially called scenes from a friendship. You know, it was like the Bergman scenes from a marriage. We just wanted to have, you know, these two people talking to each other about their, you know, men and women and relationships and see where we went. And uh, what came out of it was was when Harry met Sally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, well, here's Nora talking about, like, her relationship with Rob and how they put it together. I mean, they had both been through, like, really public divorces. You know, Nora, of course, had been married to Carl Bernstein, who we remember from right. when we did our episode on All the President's Men. He was the real-life journalist. She married him. Which he is cheated also- on her. She made the movie Heartburn about yes. it. Yeah, that whole thing. So she had been through that. But they just started talking and sharing their stories. And I love how they talk, kind of like the real couples in here, overlapping as well, chiming in, repeating each other. We've talked about before how we first started working on this together. And just like every married couple in the world we couldn't remember exactly we couldn't remember exactly like was it 1984 or 1985 right I, the only definitely th- lunch at the Russian tea yeah room. I remember meeting at the Russian yeah. tea room and I remember pitching you an idea that you completely rejected that's right and was, it was very embarrassing because yeah. it was before we'd even ordered lunch right right so. I should have waited I should have waited till we had till we ate a little bit and we were having our coffee but it was okay though because we got the idea out of the way. Yeah. And then we had a conversation. 
you, me, and Andy Scheinman. Right. You sort of talked about your life, right. your lives, right. your lives as single guys. Right. And then that was the end of the lunch. Then you right. came back to New York. You were staying in a hotel in Central Park South. Right. And I went up to your room. And I, all I remember saying is that I had an idea. I didn't know what it was going to be. I had an idea, uh, scenes from a friendship. It was basically, I had seen Ingmar Bergman, scenes from marriage. And I was trying to find any way that I could codify in some kind of screenplay form all of the experiences that I had been going through as a single person for like 10 years. Yeah, that and is making... so not what happened. But what happened? What did I say to you? What you said was you had this idea for a movie, that you right. always loved this idea. Two people become friends right. at the end of the first major relationship in each of their lives, right. and they make a decision not to have sex because it will ruin the friendship, and, and then, then they, they have, have sex, sex, and it ruins, ruins the, the friendship. friendship. That's and there is a lot of Nora herself in this film, too. You know, a lot of Sally is based on Nora. I mean, Nora's whole mantra was everything is copy. Everything in your life is material. And apparently after this film came out, Nora was on an airplane and she was ordering her Bloody Mary drink the way she likes it. And the stewardess goes, have you ever seen the movie When Harry Met Sally? Because that is how much she was like Sally. I and I also kind of want to know, I don't have the 80s of goggles on. But the fact that Sally drank so much bottled Avion, I bet in 1989 that meant something a lot different than it means today. You must have been like, oh, she's an Avion drinker. I and I'm like sad Avi that we don't yeah. have that reference anymore. Well, I also feel like it it speaks to the wealth of these people. I mean, they are clearly, uh, they're wealthy. I mean, Billy Crystal's apartment is insane. Yeah. Like, absolutely nuts. Absolutely. Um, and by the way, don't you love that when he's depressed, there's a little shot of him sitting in there reading Misery, which at first I laughed because like, I was like, oh, great. You're representing his emotional state in the book title that he's holding, which they do all the time when people are around books. You're like, what are they looking at? What is they saying in subliminally to us? Almost like it's they live of book jackets. Yeah. But then, of course, Rob Reiner already knows he's going to make Misery as his next film. So he's like stealth advertising his next project in the middle of it. I love that he is And just it. like, yeah, Rob Reiner, man, really killing it in the 80s. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time to storm my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So I know, so I think that, like, again, great films like this, and especially a great film about, like, male and female relationships, I think benefit from two sides, two very smart people uh, capturing a very unique perspective about what it is to be in relationships. Because I think that the relationships that uh, that Sally has with her friends are so beautiful and fully realized. And I think the same way, like the the uh, Billy Crystal with Bruno Kirby at the football game is like so real and not like it. I don't know. There's there's a there's um there's a sense of like both sides are really popping and they're not just feeling one dimensional. No, it's true. And yet you also see when you really look at their friendships, 
that they're maybe a little bit more honest with each other than they are yes. even with their friends. I mean, at least Meg Ryan, you know, like around her friends, Meg Ryan is like, I'm fine. Everything's good. I got this. My clock is not ticking. And she, it's Billy Crystal that she finally says, my clock was ticking. He wasn't interested. We never do go off to Paris. We never oh, do do it on the kitchen floor. Scene. She only lets herself be truly vulnerable and not like, I guess she's like a 1989 yes queen, you know, like I got this Miss Independent. She, her chart is learning how to let herself be at emotional risk. I identify a lot with her. So I'm like very much like, I get you. I get you. I, girl. Like, I am there, I'm, but I'm on the Harry side and I go, that conversation that he has with Bruno Kirby, where Bruno Kirby's like, well, you can't talk to her more than I can. You can talk to me when they're playing in the batting cages. And he and he's like, well, I mean, I could talk about different stuff. I get a female perspective. Like he is saying to his friend, yeah, I can have a different conversation with her. I can I can go there. And and he likes that. And yes. I think if anything, like that's what keeps them from getting together sooner is they're liking becoming better rounded people. I actually, I want to play two of his conversations with Bruno Kirby back to back, um, kind of to, like really to illustrate a thing that I love so much about how Rob Reiner worked with this script, because yeah. this is a script that is wall to wall talking, you know, like I'm having a yes. conversation that we're learning through talking, we're learning through talking, but it never sounds boring. And when I was watching those two scenes, I was just really appreciating how much the setting of where he puts them allows an activity to be happening around the scene. So it never feels so static. It's never like just dull, 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 sitting at a bar, like glowering at each other. Like first I want to play them having an emotional heart to heart at a football game. And second, I want to play them having that emotional heart to heart at the pitching range. So I say to her, don't you love me anymore? You know what she says? I don't know if I've ever loved you. Ooh, that's hard. Don't bounce back from that right away. Thank you. Are you saying you can say things to her you can't say to me? No, it's just different. It's a whole different perspective. I get the woman's point of view on things. She tells me about the men that she goes out with, and I can talk to her about the women that I see. You tell her about other women? Yeah. Like the other night. I made love to this woman, and it was so incredible. I took her to a place that wasn't human. She actually meowed. You made a woman meow? Yeah, that's the point. I can say these things to her. And the great thing is, I don't have to lie because I'm not always thinking about how to get her into bed. I can just be myself. You made a woman meow? This is a masterclass in how to stage a talkie film. You know, Absolutely. from the very beginning, they're like having a conversation and he's spitting out grapes to punctuate his lines. It, There's always oh. an action. There's always something happening. And the first thought I had, and I want to talk about a connection to a film that we may have talked about before, but the first thought I had was... This movie is an hour and 35 minutes. They embrace some long-ass scenes. They do so much movement. But, like, the scene on the plane, when he sees her for the second time, it's a big scene. That's like a four-pager scene. And, I don't know, I think in modern screenwriting, I'm sure people will dispute this, but I think there is an, there is a, a drive and a want not to keep scenes that long, right? Like these are chunky four or five page scenes that are so good. They illuminate the characters so well. And this movie is able to stay under an hour, you know, in that hour and 30 range. And it just makes me go like, this is economy of words. This is making your words matter. And because it's a talkie film, it doesn't feel talky. And I know they talk about this thing like the Pope in the pool. If you're going to give exposition, you got to do something to like distract you from, 
you know, it's like Indiana Jones getting the information about, uh, you know, raiders or whatever it is. It, like the Pope uh, in the pool? I've never heard that before. Oh, it, like a, it's a phrase being like, um, if you're going to drop exposition, make something interesting happening. So like there's a joke of... So if I want to tell you about my childhood, the Pope needs to be swimming behind me in his... Yeah, room. like there's like something else going on. So you're like, oh my gosh, that's so crazy. The Pope is swimming. And you also, you're hearing this information. It's like, you're not just watching two people talk, but this movie kind of breaks that mold. And yes, you're right. They have these like uh, fun physicalizations, but ultimately there are two people next to each other. And... Sometimes not even in the same scene, which is, I'm sure you who know everything, uh, see the homage here to Pillow Talk. Oh, yeah. To the Doris Day kind of movies where, yeah. since, you know, since literally you though, have her in bed with Rock Hudson during the production code, they would film them in split screen. Yes. And so they like I want to play a little bit. This is Rock Hudson and Doris Day in bathtubs, split screen. Uh, they're both in their own bathtub, but this is a conversation. And tell me, this doesn't feel like when Harry met Sally. You'll find that most people are willing to meet you halfway. If you let them. Am I going to see you tonight? Oh, I'd love to, Rex, but I already have a date tonight. Who with? A client. You don't know him. Jonathan Forbes. Of course, you ain't the kind of gal who'd break a date. No, I'm not. And I ain't the kind of guy that'd ask you to. I know you're not. I'll pick you up at eight. I'll be ready. I love that. And it's such an example of taking a negative, the production code, and figuring out at that time how to make it visually interesting, how to get around it, like yeah. what you can do within the limits. I love people who fig- who deal with rules by pushing on the margins of them and seeing yeah. where they can go. And yeah, and I love kind of thinking of that scene and then thinking about the two of that these people, Harry and Sally, watching like Casablanca together and the camera being behind their heads. And it's framed mm. with their heads almost touching in the split yes. screen so you can oh. picture them in bed together. Although they're like Elvis, so then they'd have two TVs. Uh. But but it's it's such a great visual, you know, to to do it like that. And then to keep like making it more and more, like to get all the way up to as big as like the four-way call me scene, which is just hilarious. We have to listen to that. Oh, yes. Okay, great. Yours. <clears throat> Hello. I'm sorry to call so early. Are you all right? No one I know would call at this hour. I did something terrible. What did you do? No one I know would call at this That's hour. so awful. I need to talk. What happened? What's the matter? Harry came over last I night. I went over to Sally's last night. Because I was upset that Joe was getting married. And one thing led to another. And before I knew it, we were kissing and To make and a long story short, we, we did, did it. it. They did it. That's great, Sally. We've been praying for it. We should have done it in the first place. For months we've been saying you should do it. You guys belong together. It's like killing two birds with one stone. It's like two wrongs make a right. How, How was, was it? it? The during part was good. I thought it was good. But then I felt suffocated. Then I guess it wasn't. Jesus, I'm sorry. No worries. I had to get out of there. He just disappeared. I feel so bad. I'm so embarrassed. I don't blame you. That's horrible. I think I'm coming down with something. I think I'm catching a cold. Look, look, it would have been great if it worked out, but it didn't. Mm. I should never go to bed with anyone when you found out your last boyfriend is getting married. Who's that talking? Who? Is that Jess on the phone? It's Jane Fonda on the VCR. It's Brian Gumbel. You Do you want to come, come over for, for breakfast? breakfast? No, I'm not up to it. No, I feel too awful. Good. good. I mean, it's so early. But call me later if you want. I'll call you later, okay? Okay, bye. 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 God. I know. Tell me I'll never have to be out there again. All right, so here's a couple things that that made me think of. First of all, my immediate thought was Mean Girls, right? It has that same Um, vibe of Mean Girls, of the call waiting, boom, boom, boom. And as I found out, that scene was shot in one take 
took 63 times because they all were on set in the same spot, you know, in their own little areas doing this scene. And it had to be perfect from the hangups to the pauses to everything. Like uh, Nora Ephron said that at one point, Bruno Kirby, they had a perfect shot and Bruno Kirby messed up his last line and they had to do it again 63 times to get that imperfection. So just rewind the podcast again and listen to that. Like that is all happening as if it's live on stage. Uh, and I didn't realize that. I, in my mind, I'm like, why would you do that? Can't you just shoot them all separately and just line them up? But there is an energy to that scene. I think the reason why that scene is so kind of famous and, and why it's burnt into your your brain is because of that. There is a live nature to it. And I guess you can't tell it's been 63 times. No, it doesn't feel like 63 times. It, it still feels awful because, you know, as much as... As much as I think of this as a talkie film, one of the things that really popped out to me on this watch is the amount of silence that's built into a movie that's in the minute, the hour 30 range. I hear what you're saying. It's a dense movie that is actually incredibly lean. Exactly. And yet they build in times for the talking to stop. Because when the talking stops and when Harry and Sally are not getting along, which is what I find so painful... They let you feel the lack of them. It's like they have this conversational energy that's the motor of the film and the motor of the film. And it's just going from that first car scene. You know, it's propelling you. And then when he's like, oh, no, it's awkward now. The cringe. I mean, think about the salad scene, how they give so much space to just quiet eating of salad. This is just a clip of it. It goes on for so long. Quiet salad eating. And it is breaking my heart. It is so nice when you can sit with someone and not have to talk. Hmm? <laughs> the confidence to build in quiet, I think, is an underrated skill in script writing. Well, I think that we are unfortunately getting to a moment where we don't trust an audience enough to have moments of silence. And I'm a fucking broken record, but I, I believe that someone like Vince Gilligan has really figured out how to embrace silence so wonderfully. Like in Better Call Saul and, and Breaking Bad, there are long sections of just being in silence with the character and the great music and whatever, and you're just watching and being, but it's so rare to really allow, I think Noah Baumbach actually does it well too, to allow characters to just be and trust that, we will be able to, like, we will be engaged by them. And, and there are these moments like that. Like this movie, like just the, 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 them being together, then you see them separately being single and just their montages around New York. I mean, it makes you fall. In, I mean, this is, this is as much as a New York movie as a Woody Allen. I mean, this is a New York movie too, but like the way it makes you feel about New York, the way it makes you feel about being single, it's like, but a lot of that is done through silence. You know, like you don't have a big monologue uh, with Billy Crystal running down the street. Like he, tells Meg Ryan at the end how he felt, but it's not like, um, I don't know. They allow you to exist in depression or a doubt. I don't know. They, yeah. Yeah. You, you're nailing it. I'm just echoing it. Maybe it's because in the five years since I last saw this film, which I saw for an article, that I might even probably bring up a few more times in this whole series called like who killed the romantic comedy. I've talked about it before where like I interviewed a bunch of people about like what happened to them, why they weren't getting made. This is like five years ago, six years ago before Netflix brought them back. Right. The number one romantic comedy that everybody pointed to is like, why don't we have another one Harry Met Sally? This was the one. But because we just finished, you know, the AFI top 100, 
and and the other films were more refreshed in my mind. I was like, oh wow, that running scene on New Year's. I didn't realize that that was just the apartment. Remember that right. like yes. there's that sad New Year's party, and then yes. Shirley MacLaine gets up and just starts running and running down the street. And I I felt like more. I felt like I got more of the love for other cinema that's in this film, that all of the references that are here. And some of them, I think I was stretching a bit. You know, they're they're at the wedding, they're listening to the other couple do their vows, and they're looking at each other awkwardly. And I was pretending in my head that that could be from Sunrise. Remember yeah. when the couple sneaks into yes, that wedding yes, and yes, they yes. renew their love for each other while yeah. they're listening to other people? I love this film as a love letter to cinema that's just built in. You really feel the deep connections, which is why I think it's so funny that this movie centers itself on Casablanca, this debate about like, what do you think about Casablanca, the film? I mean, can we just listen to the first argument yes. that they're mm-hmm. having about Casablanca? You're wrong. I'm not wrong. You're he, wrong. He, wa- he wants her to leave. That's why he puts her on the plane. I don't think she wants to stay. Of course she wants to stay. Wouldn't you rather be with Humphrey Bogart than the other guy? I don't want to spend the rest of my life in Casablanca married to a man who runs a bar. It probably sounds very snobbish to you, but I don't. You'd rather be in a passionless marriage. And be the first lady of Czechoslovakia. Than live with a man you've had the greatest sex of your life with just because he owns a bar and that is all he does. Yes. And so at any woman in her right mind, women are very practical, even Ingrid Bergman, which is why she gets on the plane at the end of the movie. I have to say, there's a tiny bit of me, the unromantic little bit of me that is momentarily swayed by this argument that Ingrid Bergman would not want to spend the rest of her life in a bar. Oh, I mean, look, it it's a beautiful way to like look at I don't think it's a pessimistic this is what's interesting about them. It's like neither of them are wrong. They just have their opinions about how, what what a perfect thing is or what a the right way is. And I think the truth of it is most relationships are compromise. And I don't mean that in a, a sense of like you don't become who you are, but it's sort of like it's not always what you think it's going to be and for better and for worse. And, and, and sometimes like these ideas that we have about the perfect thing or the best thing are, are actually doing us a disservice, you know, to a certain degree. Right. You know, it's like, I think that Meg Ryan is like looking for this one thing and he, and, and also Billy Crystal's like looking at this one thing and, 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 you know, and, and I think it can distract you from what you really should be getting. Does that make sense? Or what, it does. You know, what, what is best for you? I don't know. And I think in that way, we do see her growth, too, that she later on is like, I would have never said that about Ingrid Bergman, you know, 10 years right. later, that she's learned a little bit about love. But I think, you know, when I look at her whole arc in this film, what I see is a person with impossibly high standards, right? For herself, mm-hmm. for everybody else. And what I adore about Meg Ryan's performance, which is like a gigantic list. I think it's just an incredible oh, debut amazing. movie star performance. I mean, by the way, she fought for this lead role. She fought yeah. for this. And you know who was going to be the original, the, the original lead or who had to drop out at the last minute? Who? Uh, Molly Ringwald. Could you imagine this movie wow. with Molly Ringwald? She just got too busy. Billy Crystal and Molly Ringwald. It's just not it's not. Right. I mean, no, and, and the and, age gap would be way too big back then. I mean, look, uh, Sally, Rob Reiner wanted Suzanne Day to play Sally, but Meg Ryan, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. She is yeah. whew, perfect. She's amazing. I mean, she had done, you know, Top Gun before. She was like Goose's wife. But to me, this is what this is like what I love to see a movie do, which is like they take an actress, 
that they believe in and they give her this big breakout role and they create a movie star. Right now in this movie, they create Meg Ryan by giving her this part. But do they create Meg Ryan or does the chemistry between Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal create Meg Ryan? Like, you know what I'm saying? It's like there is something that Meg Ryan is bringing that is so uniquely her own. And uh, and let's just name it right now because we have to like the the orgasm scene in the deli. Right. That was apparently like Meg Ryan. Like that was her addition. Like this is Nora Ephron, somebody who's like working with people and going like, yes, what do we want to add? What do we want to do? And Billy Crystal adds the line. I'll have what she's having. Like, you know, uh, like they're all kind of building together. But I think that Meg Ryan brings so much of herself. And then Billy Crystal actually like shines her and she shines him. I would argue this is the best Billy Crystal performance that we've ever had. Uh, you know, uh, hands down, well-rounded. It is the best. Yeah, I mean, part of what I heard about how my grind winds up in this film is that mm-hmm. she had auditioned to play Billy Crystal's girlfriend in, I think, Throw Mama from the Train. Oh, wow, okay. And she didn't get the part, but Billy Crystal, when she came back, Billy Crystal was like, that girl and I definitely have a really good chemistry. And so if she had actually gotten this other part, she wouldn't have gotten this one, which really made her career. It was Steel Magnolias. Yeah, but then she like, what I love about her here is she does this thing where she's always putting her nose in the air. And it, to me, it's like yes. this symbol of like, which which version of Sally is she right now? Is she open Sally where she's going to have her head down and she's looking him eye to eye? Or is she, I'm above the Sally where she's just, the matter she gets, the more she puts her nose in the mm-hmm. air. You definitely see just, that nose pointed out. It's really funny. You can really see it throughout the whole film. Yeah, it's just such a thoughtful performance. You know, mm-hmm. her intonations in it, the way she phrases things. You you feel her really thinking and reacting to him. And yes. I think a lot of that is because like some of his scenes were improvised and she just rolled with it. You know, like when they're in the museum and he's making up that thing about like yeah. the popper kosh and doing the access. Like yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He just started doing that. And he said, if you watch closely, you can see her glance off camera to uh, Rob Reiner to see if it's okay if she improvises along with him. And Rob Reiner gives her the nod. Then she like joins that scene. But it gives it this really natural feeling of her like shaking up around him, which I love, but she just does it. She's so game, you know, and to get back to that orgasm scene, like it was definitely her idea um, to do it. She was like, I can absolutely imitate this. Let me do it. Let me do it. But then the day of, she got really nervous because it's a little weird, you know, to yeah, do that in an actual about diner yeah, surrounded like, yeah. by extras. And so she did it once and it was kind of timid. And Rob Reiner's like, you got to go bigger. So she does it again and it's still kind of timid. So Rob Reiner is like, I'll show you. And he sits down at the table. Rob Reiner, you know, and you can picture him. Yeah. Gen- genial bearded man. Starts having the loudest orgasm scene, like banging on the tables in front of his own mom. Goes big with it in order to make her feel comfortable going big again. And then she nails it. But you have to do that scene like so many times. I think she did that scene like 20, 30 times because they have to get all these like reaction shots from different people in there who are listening. Billy Crystal kept screwing up the scene on purpose. He'd screw up one line just to make her do it again because he thought the whole thing was like really funny. But it it is it's like a career making scene, you know, to do that. And yet I think all the little details in the film that she puts forth in her character and the way she moves and thinks and reacts and breathes and even when she blinks. They all just feel so incredibly well thought out. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. 
This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. As we're talking about the orgasm scene, I want to talk about the buildup to it, though. Because before she starts doing this, she's actually getting to something really important, which is the way that Billy Crystal treats women and how she feels about it. She's doing that orgasm scene not necessarily to make a point about how women can fake it, but about how the women he's treating in his life maybe aren't happy. That he, she's trying to make a point about the emotional neglect he's giving to all of these bed partners that she's really worried about and that she's worried she'll become. And I don't, I want, I don't want to overshadow that. So what I want to do is I want to play the buildup to the orgasm scene, which is her really calling out his behavior, and then. In place of her orgasm scene, I want to play um, a little clip from a prank that people did where they laced Katz's stealthily with people who were all prepared to enact this scene once when couples started the lead. It's pretty funny. So what do you do with these women? You just get up out of bed and leave? Sure. Well, explain to me how you do it. What do you say? Just have an early meeting, early haircut, early squash game. You don't play squash. They don't know that. They just met me. That's disgusting. I know. I feel terrible. You know, I'm so glad I never got involved with you. I just would have ended up being some woman you had to get up out of bed and leave at 3 o'clock in the morning and go clean your andirons. And you don't even have a fireplace. Not that I would know this. Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. Hey, I don't feel great about this, but I don't hear anyone complaining. Of course not. You're out the door too fast. I think they have an okay time. How do you know? I mean, how do I know I know? Because they... Yes, because they... How do you know that they're really... What are you saying? That they fake orgasm? It's possible. Get out of here. Why? Most women at one time or another have faked it. Well, they haven't faked it with me. How do you know? Because I know. Yeah, I think, you know, look, putting Meg Ryan, who is an actress, next to someone who is known as a, at this point, a stand-up comedian. And yes, he was on Soap, but also a oh, Saturday Night we're not going to just, like, brush past Soap. Do you know how much I love Soap? Oh, I mean, Soap is amazing. Look, but I was just saying, in, in the sense of... Wait, can I play a okay. clip from Soap? Sure. Okay, just because I have to play a clip I love from it. Soap, because I love it. I mean, if people have not seen Soap, it's not streamable right now. When I was playing up this clip, I was like, I have to watch all seasons of Soap right now. Uh, I have to do it, and I couldn't find it. But um, the Soap sitcom and Benson soap, used to be on back to back when I was growing up, and I'd watch them back to back. I felt like they're the same so good. show. I think I Comedy it. Central used to play them, which is oh yeah, was it them? Yeah, uh, Billy Crystal started his career in the seventies 
One of the first things he did was All in the Family, which is where he met Rob Reiner. So they've been like friends a gazillion years since mm-hmm. then. I mean, this is them even talking about it. You met on All in the, 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 the Family in 19, 1975. Five. I played Rob's best friend in All in the Family in one episode. and we, it, we were cast it, as his best friend? Yeah. yeah. And it went pretty yeah. well. So we, so said, we just said we'll keep, keep doing it going. <laughs> we figured Norman Lear, he's very smart. Very smart. He knows what he's doing. No one has said cut yet. No. So we're okay. So we keep going. And then he does Soap, where he plays a gay man named Jody. And this is him breaking his news to his mom that even though he's gay, he's planning on getting married. His mom that you can hear in this clip is played by Catherine Hellman, who if we ever get to do Brazil, we're going to get a really good Catherine Hellman performance uh, and in consideration. But yeah, this is Billy Crystal as Jody in the 70s. Well, Jody, you're going to get married, huh? Yeah, it uh, looks that way. Isn't that nice? Yeah. I guess that means you're not gay. No, Aunt Jessica, it doesn't. Hmm. You know, Jody, when we were younger, there was no such thing as homosexuals. Yes, there were, Aunt Jessica. The homosexuals go way back in history. Who? Alexander the Great was gay. Uh, Plato was gay. Plato? <laughs> Mickey Mouse's dog was gay? Well, I guess what I'm saying is, yes, and he's great in that, and he's on SNL, and he's done so much this, but he's a comedian, and there are certain moments in this movie where it's like the, they're opening him up, and they're saying, do your bits, do your bits, and it's a part of his character and a person, it doesn't feel like out, it's as much as like Eddie Murphy does like full-on characters in Beverly Hills Cop, right? It's organic to a certain point, but you forgive it, like the poppycock, the, uh, you know, the baby fish mouth. Like there's a, he's, he is going to be funnier and just, and that's a hard thing to keep up with. And I've, I've done, I've improvised with many people who are not comedians and it's a little bit tricky. I think people like, I don't want to mess it up. I don't want to jump in. Uh, And we have that happen on the league all the time. Like, and what kind of happens here though, is it kind of plays into their relationship And instead of getting washed over by him, again, how this movie gets diluted, like sometimes the female characters will just be like, oh, you're so funny, like laughing at somebody else. I feel like that's become like such a trope. You're like, oh, ha ha. Like, and, but she. Yeah, it's not like he wins her over by teaching her to laugh. She has a sense of humor. Yes. And she, I guess what she is able to retain is her own personality. Yes, he's doing these things, but she's just not laughing at him. She's engaging with him. She's playful with him. She's not. Do like I don't know. There's a there's a difference there that feels more real. Like she's just not watching in awe of this comedian dancing around, and that's a very I think that's a great direction from Rob Reiner to make sure that, that doesn't happen. And I think that's actually great acting too because she's staying so true to the character, like you said, with the nose up and everything. Like she's able to compete on his level without doing him, right? Like she's not she's not trying to do what he's doing, like funny voices and all that sort of stuff. But like that scene where he says, hey, look, it's a singing machine. Billy, wasn't it a karaoke machine in 1989? I think it was. A singing machine? What the fuck? So he takes that singing machine and then he does his story of the fringe on top. And you know, Billy Crystal loves to sing and he's doing his thing. And then when she sings so badly, she kind of steals that moment. Like she like there's a real back and forth where they both get moments to shine that feel organic to who they are. This is a singing machine. You sing the, 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 the lead, and this has the backup and everything. This is from Oklahoma. Here's the lyrics right here. Story with a fringe on top. Yes, perfect. Ooh. 
chicks and ducks and geese better scurry when I take you out in my surrey. When I take you out in my surrey with the fringe on top. Now you watch that fringe and see, see how it flutters when I drive them high seven shutters. Nosy pokes will peek through the shutters and their eyes will pop. The wheels are yellow, the upholstery's brown, the dashboard's genuine leather. With eyes and glass curtains that will roll. What? It's my voice, isn't it? I hate my voice. Actually, speaking of when people knew it was a karaoke machine or a singing machine, when did Sharper Image become a thing? Was this like the beginning of Sharper Image? No, no, no. I was in Sharper Image. Like that was to me what I like when I went to the city, I grew up outside of New York City. FAO Schwartz and Sharper Image were the places to go. It was like it found it was founded in 1977. So it'd been around for a while. But there were only like a handful of stores. Like it was like fun to go to Sharper Image. Like now I think they're all like in local malls. But back when I was a kid, it was like we're going to FAO Schwartz and we're going to walk in the block to Sharper Image and we're going to look at all the stuff that we can never buy that looks so cool because you could touch everything in Sharper Image. Like you could literally, you know, like everything was able to be played with. And as a kid, I was like, this is the fucking best. And now as an adult uh, with having kids, I'd be like, oh, I'd be like, put that down. Please, just don't, play. Okay, guys, 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 <laughs> please. Uh, yeah, I mean, I want to go into a Sharper Image. Like we had one at my suburban mall in Texas. Mm-hmm. And all I remember is that they had, I think those like glowing orbs the lightning balls oh, that are yeah, purple yeah, yeah. and if you touch it a couple of years ago i tried to buy one of those i like had this idea when oh, i was yeah. on tv that i really wanted one on my desk Ooh, but I they uh i never found one that i thought was right they were either too small or too big or put I, into side dragon I, bellies and i wasn't into that i just wanted, yeah like, no you want the real one uh, that's yeah. the one that they sold at spencer's gifts all the time i i will say that this movie is new york to me like this is the new york that i grew up in this is the uh there's something about that that i really connect to as well and i don't know if that is it's true to you, but like going to Sharper Image feels like this, this New York, like these walks, these where they are. It just it it's New York without having like a million shots of the Empire State Building. Right. Like, I feel like that's another thing that this movie does so well. It's like, yes, they're in New York. It's the backdrop. But like one of the beautiful, most beautiful scenes is them walking and talking with the leaves changing down the street there or carrying a Christmas tree by themselves. Like I. I remember carrying a Christmas tree by myself. I remember carrying a Christmas tree with a girlfriend. Like, that's New York. Like, New York isn't just like, ba 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 big building, Beyonce song, you know? And I feel like that's what it becomes, <laughs> you know, a lot of the times in, in movies. I, I think it captures a much more beautiful New York in its smaller uh, beauties. Agreed, agreed. There's love here. And, you know, actually, the bookstore scene when, uh, when Harry and Sally see each other again at a bookstore... Mm-hmm. That was a bookstore that Nora Ephron really loved. And after they made When Harry Met Sally, it shut down because they built a Barnes and Noble around the corner. Uh, and that loss of that bookstore that she loved so much to put into this movie is what inspired her to do You've Got Mail. Uh, okay. And, and by the way, here's something interesting. Who turned down the role of Harry? None other than Tom Hanks said it was too lightweight. Oh, Tom. Yet I would argue, I would argue and no offense to You Got Mail, but You Got Mail, you can't put those two movies in the same sentence. I mean, they're great together, Tom Hanks, and, and that's another great example of good chemistry. I like them together, yeah. and I like them again. But those movies do not hold a candle to this movie as far as its wit, and uh, this movie is cooler than those movies. Don't you agree? Absolutely. Although, the last time I was in Seattle... 
one of my friends told me that if you go to this one part of the wharf, you can see the houseboat. And so I did do that because I was like, why not? Oh, I mean, I would do it. I look I, like I'm going to I'm going to Oregon and I'm going to go see the Goonies house. I'm going to see all these things. But it, like, <laughs> I, but I guess like my thought is. I, I just keep on coming back to this. I know this movie is 1989, but I think this movie speaks to a couple of things. Yes, these are rich, white New York City people. Mm-hmm. But by taking out the job, by making New York a backdrop, making money is not really that much of an important thing to it. It really is a movie about partners, like who you partner with and how you interact with them. And and I think everyone can identify that speech uh, that Billy Crystal gives at the end. And, and, and not if you are a person who, uh, you know, Want sauce on the side, but the way that he says what he looks forward to, like the things that are the things that annoy him or the things that frustrate him are the things that he loves like that. There is a there is a coolness. There is a universality to this film that I think men and women like it. I think we're sleepless in Seattle and you got mail not to not to overly simplify. But those movies also, I think, become like chick flicks, rom com. Like this is like this is like a full on comedy. It's cooler. And I think it it just shows it's about humans humans yes and and i mean yeah. i think if anything that's why this was the romantic comedy that people of our generation were pointing to is what they want back because it has space for the man to be a man and ha- be emotional and grow yes and space for women so it isn't marginalized as a chick flick and i'll say this you know to your point before and i forgot to bring this up like her wanting sauce on the side right that whole thing goes back to it's a deeply rooted thing about her character control she wants control she's trying to do everything right and like and yes it's a funny thing because she's very specific about what she wants but she is very specific about what she wants and 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 it's so interesting that like when he sleeps with her he feels like he made the mistake like you know she doesn't feel like she made the mistake and that's different too like he doesn't want to wreck this thing that they had which was this true relationship this true connection which is what we're all searching for in any relationship uh and i think that 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 makes it so much like he's not escaping because he's like oh i gotta get out he's escaping for a different reason now she misreads it like he's escaping like he's got to get out but he's wrestling with like losing this friend in this relationship And, and the way that he's like groveling to her like he didn't do anything wrong but he's groveling to her because he's like he wants this part of himself back. And that's, I think, you know, when you go through a breakup, what you mourn is that too, that loss of yourself. And hopefully you replace it with a better version of it. But that, all that sort of stuff, um, that's hard to kind of say what it is, is so on the surface. And I think it, and even though they're talking about Casablanca and if you, I've never saw Casablanca until, uh, we did it here on the podcast, but I, I can understand it from, you know, context clues, right? Uh, did I make a card catalog of all my movies? Yes, I did because of this movie. But, um, but I think that, and I'd love to talk to younger people. I think this movie holds true for younger people, even though the references are old and there's dated things and people are tucking in their jeans and they're wearing sneakers and all that sort of bullshit. This movie retains its uh, its luster because it is so based in being hu- about humanity. Sorry, Harry. I know it's New Year's Eve. I know you're feeling lonely, but you just can't show up here. Tell me you love me and expect that to make everything all right. It doesn't work this way. Well, how does it work? I don't know, but not this way. How about this way? I love that you get cold when it's 71 degrees out. I love that it takes you an hour and a half to order a sandwich. 
I love that you get a little crinkle above your nose when you're looking at me like I'm nuts. I love that after I spend a day with you, I can still smell your perfume on my clothes. And I love that you are the last person I want to talk to before I go to sleep at night. And it's not because I'm lonely, and it's not because it's New Year's Eve. I came here tonight because when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. You see? That is just like you, Harry. You say things like that, and you make it impossible for me to hate you. And I hate you, Harry. Also, speaking of classical references, if you go online, you can find some of the deleted scenes. And even there, they're talking about classic movies. Like here, I want you to picture this. They had a scene in the car where Billy Crystal's going to take the grapes and he's using it to become a Corleone. I love grapes. Look at this. Two grapes, okay? You like movies? Ah. Michael, I never wanted for you. I always thought you could be Senator Corleone. And then even one of the stories that they created, uh, where the, the old couples are talking to each other, they have to name check another famous romantic comedy. I went to a matinee of It Happened One Night. And just to the scene when Claudette Colbert hikes up her skirt to get it right, the projector broke. If that projector would not break there and then, I would not be on the 313 trolley heading home, which I was. I And I think... Look, I know that we're we're both of a certain age, but I'm going to say that this movie and this talk about this movie continues. And did you know that it actually had a a stage adaptation? Oh, yes, I yeah. did. All right. Well, would you like to hear a clip from uh, Allison Hannigan and Luke Perry in Harry Met Sally? Oh, yes. We must play this. The first time that we met, we hated each other. No, you didn't hate me. I hated you. And the second time we met, you didn't even remember me. I did, too. I remembered you. The third time we met, we became friends. We were friends for a long time. And then we weren't. And then we fell in love. Three months later, we got married. Only took three months. Twelve years and three months. Okay, okay, okay. I'll see your, I think, incredibly awkward absolute chemistry-free reading of those lines. <sighs> that that was not fun. That was not fun. But here's what I'll um, say. that That's, to your point again, this is, you can't make this shit up. It's, there's an alchemy to film that is so hard. Like, is Indiana Jones as successful with Tom Selleck? I don't know, right? Is this movie mm-hmm. as successful with Tom Hanks and Molly Ringwald? I don't know. Um, there is something that is just like it's not the words, it's the people, it's the right mix at the right time, it's that right chemistry that is, and, and that's what everyone's trying to find. And I think what we've devolved into, and not to get on this high horse again, we're making movies that are trying to like money ball the system. Who is the big star we can put in here that makes this thing? And you like Thor, so you'll like this, and you'll like that, and boom, 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 boom. Where instead, we need to be finding the right people for the right roles because we'll break another Meg Ryan instead of just going, well, we'll capitalize on having Meg Ryan, if that makes sense. You know, it's like, and that to me is the problem with newer romantic comedies. And I think when you have something like um, that movie with Randall Park and Ali Wong, 
people were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Randall and Allie are good friends. They write, they work on this together. They make this thing. And it, it gives you that, that, that sense of, oh, that's what we want to see. We want to see that. We want to see these moments. I'm not saying that there are none of them, but that makes a big difference instead of just going big star, big star, put them together. It will work. Because I think we've seen so many failures on that level. Yeah, I think that what helped kill the romantic comedy is people were making them like that. They're like, everybody loves Reese Witherspoon. I don't know. Everybody loves Paul Rudd. Surely we'll want to see them together in a romantic comedy. Wow, that's one of the worst. That's one of the worst. And I love them both. I love them both. Terrible film. Terrible film. Terrible film. The only thing that I think is worse than that. And this is not a Heigl slam because I will stick up for Heigl in certain parts, mm-hmm. but the awful truth, no, the ugly truth, the ugly mm-hmm. truth, the one that was like Heigl and Gerard Butler, both of oh, whom can oh. be great. Yeah. But in this movie, it's the meanest. It's like, it took the lesson of like, people should argue. And she's a journalist, I think, or some yeah, fucking you know, nonsense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just mean. They're just mean to each other the whole way through. Well, and it feels like yes. it almost became the curdled when Harry met Sally. Because there's even a scene where he like, she's somehow in these remote controlled vibrating panties. And then they start oh, yeah. getting activated while they're at a restaurant and she doesn't want it to be activated. And I don't even think she's not holding the buttons. Like, I think like a child is in the scene holding uh, the buttons. She yes. doesn't know what's happening. Yes. But she's like having an orgasm at a restaurant for real, but also being confused and angry but about this, it. This the whole is, movie is uh, just dark. It, but here's the thing. It's like the way I get so fucking perturbed and you heard me, I said perturbed, at like TV shows that are like, FOMO, that's the name of our show, because somebody's saying it, like, okay, so people have heard about these panties that have like a robot in it that make you come, like, so they're, let's do it. But it, it's, like, I don't know, I just feel like it's what you're throwing, you're trying to marvelize a romantic comedy, whereas something like Palm Springs, which came out this year, which I absolutely loved, um, does a take on Groundhog's Day, does a take on romantic comedy that feels nice. It feels organic. You like these people. You care about these people. You know, obviously there's different things at play in this, but uh, it makes a big difference when there's like true chemistry. And and, and even though uh, Palm Springs is a very high concept film, the relationship, the love of that relationship is, is really like low concept if I give, you know, yeah, I don't know. I love that. I mean, someday when we get some distance from it, because I feel like I'm only now really seeing the shape of it, Mm-hmm. I want to understand why we decided in the 2000s that we had to hate everyone in our movies. Like yes. why we had unlikable people as our protagonists who were mean to each other in romantic comedies. Why we did that in horror. Why the people that we are killing in horror films were just awful and you didn't care. Like why were we so mean? It was a dark ass <sighs> mean time. Yeah, I think we want. Look, this is the year 2020 was the year of the feel good movie, right? From For all intents and purposes, you have the Bill and Ted three, which has like a fun, like it's nice, nice movies. People want to see nice movies, and maybe it's too nice at certain points. Um, but it's okay. It's okay to like our characters, and it's okay to also like what Billy Crystal is saying in this movie. Is you can see his point. I guess that's what I want to say. Like you can see his point, even though I may not agree with his point. You see it, and you understand why he's saying it. He doesn't, you know, he, he, like he's not not functioning in the world. He's not like in a room. He's not in a house with like fucking, uh, you know, Knicks uh, basketballs on the wall, and you know, like it's like he's just like I don't know. I just feel like that's that is. Um, he's not like a typical man. He just has an opinion about something, and 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 that's okay. I don't know. I, I just feel like 
that's what we've missed is like we make people so arch. We make people so angry. We make people like it's so hard to, again, coming back to this word, see the humanity here. And I think when Cameron Crowe is working on full thrusters, like and say anything, you see the humanity there. I think, you know, I think you see it uh, even in Judd Apatow movies. I think you've seen it in movies like Roxanne or 500 Days of Summer. You know, there are there are movies that really uh, that really can get it. Top five, you know, Longshot. I thought Longshot was a great romantic comedy that if you love romantic comedies, go see that movie. It's so well done. You know, um, I don't know. It, like it, it, it can still happen. It can still happen. Yeah, I, I would like to think we're on the upswing. Although, have you seen the funnier die clip on the fake When Harry Met Sally sequel? No. OK, this is I'm going to play just a couple tiny short clips just to kind of give you the whole sense of it. So first. It starts with Billy Crystal and Rob Reiner pitching this movie to a bunch of young executives. So after Sally passes away, it's not only about Harry dealing with the loss, but also about finding love again. Yeah, you know, because people love Harry and Sally. I mean, they, they want to know what they're up to now. I mean, even if one of them is dead. So then they start to make the film and they team him up in a retirement home now. They've made him very old um, where he meets Helen Mirren. The liver and onions, please. I want my flaxseed oil on the side, and I just want low-sodium butter. And then for dessert, I'll have the tapioca pudding, but I want sugar-free whipped cream. But if you don't have sugar-free, then I'll just have a scoop of cottage cheese with seedless berries. But if you don't have seedless, then I won't have anything at all. Thank you. But then, of course, the young executives seem to not believe in love or romantic comedies because then they take this setup and they try to make it into two different movies. One is called Grampires, where there are old people huh? who are now vampires, and the other one is Grombies, where there are old people who are now zombies. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll have what you So anyway, he was chowing down on this forearm. Well, no, it wasn't a forearm. It was his thigh. I was chowing down on his thigh, and here comes this little girl. Well, anyway, you know, he's always had this huge appetite. I have a very big appetite. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And by the way, uh, that was directed by uh, Lindsay Crystal, Billy Crystal's daughter. Aw, you gotta mm. love that. See, I thought you were gonna come in here all hot because Billy Crystal is a Clippers fan. Oh, you know what? Look, Amy, I don't try to bring our basketball talk always into into the uh, into the conversation, but like, you look. Am I trying to take the mantle away from Billy Crystal? Absolutely. I mean, I don't want to bring up <laughs> like I I, I got to knock this guy out. I got to knock him out. Wow. I don't. Well, I, I got to say, when you get interviewed just like he did by Shaq and Barkley. Oh man. Well, I got to tell you, he is not. I don't feel like he shows up as much uh, with all the Clippers. Like lately, I haven't seen that much Billy. Uh, I saw him once at the game trying to talk to Adam Sandler. When, There's a thing uh, called the gyms. pandemic. Where you want him to be? You want? Him to be- I was at a, at all the games last year. I barely see him there. I barely see him. Wow. And by the wow. way, he does nothing for the team. He does nothing. Not in the really? fucking... I've not seen a fucking video with him. I, that, I feel like, yes, he's got those seats. He's been there for a long time. I respect him very, very much because he's been there in the darkest, darkest times. But, uh, you know... Wait, so point, are you saying that Billy Crystal is why people don't believe that Clippers fans actually are real? That they're not just doing it to be contrarians? You know, people said that to me this week. Like, oh, the only Clipper fans are L.A. Laker haters. And I, like... You know, I guess because I'm from New York and I came in, I, I never thought of it like that. But I guess there's like, look, you know, uh, there's a uh, there's a you know, there's a MAGA attitude with uh, Laker fans and Clipper people. Like, I got to I got to accept it. <laughs> um, so when Harry Vitelli comes out, 
it does well. They, they, again, this is another success of platforming. Like we talked about with Home Alone. It's interesting. They were so good at platforming these films in like 1989, 1990 that we've been talking about. They platformed it. The per screen average was super high. It was like up in Star Wars territory. And so then they made it broad. It did very well at the box office. Mm -hmm. Not, not astoundingly, but very, very well. It gets nominated for a bunch of awards. It doesn't win anything. Um, Nora Ephron gets nominated for screenplay at the Oscars. Billy Crystal uh, gets nominated as a comedy actor for the Golden Globes. He's nominated against his buddy, Steve Martin. They both lose. And after they both lose, they storm the stage. You can hear them right now storming the stage and confusing the hell out of Sybil Shepard. This is uh, very unorthodox, um, especially from a reformed Jew. And... Talking about me? Yeah. And we were just wondering, because we were both in the, you know, the category for best actor in a comedy, and Morgan won, and we just, you know, kind of had a bet about who was second. <laughs> Not a big deal, but, you know, we just... If you find out, we'll be over here at the Losers. Uh, <laughs> But I will say, I thought I'd go back and be like, man, how am I going to find a negative review of uh, When Harry Met Sally? That's going to be so hard. Oh, no. No, people really? actually gave this movie several but negative reviews. That, but they all shared the common point, which was they looked at this movie and they thought, you are ripping off Woody Allen. This is oh, wow. bullshit. And so I found a review. It's incredibly long. So okay, pardon I'm, me. Yeah, but I can't wait. Okay, here we go. This is from the Orlando Sentinel. From where I sit, When Harry Met Sally looks like a deliberate attempt to synthesize a Woody Allen comedy without the participation of Woody Allen. The points of correspondence between the new film and some of Allen's movies go beyond setting, New York, and theme, Yuppie Love. The Sally of the title sometimes wears clothes that look like Annie Hall hand-me-downs and has a friend played by Carrie Fisher who appeared in Allen's Hannah and Her Sisters. The Harry of the title has a buddy played by Bruno Kirby who may remind you of the buddies played by Tony Roberts or Michael Murphy in Alan's movies. And Harry makes a last-minute dash through the streets of New York, just as Alan's character made in Manhattan. I might say the apartment did it for sooner, but that's just me inserting myself in here. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. The smaller similarities are even more amazing. On the soundtrack, for example, are the kind of old musical standards that Woody Allen films often feature. And as the movie opens, one of those tunes, It Had to Be You, is heard. The credits flash on an otherwise blank screen, just as the credits in Alan's pictures do. The characters in the new film think about their love affairs in relation to Casablanca, just as Alan's character did in Play It Again, Sam. Intercut throughout the new film are head-on interviews with older couples, a technique that recalls the brief head-on interviews in older couples and Alan's Take the Money and Run. And then after calling it a clone, he goes after the jokes specifically. He says that in such Alan films as Annie Hall in Manhattan, the jokes tell us more about the characters and the development of the characters makes the jokes all the funnier. But in When Harry Met Sally, the gags work against our understanding of the characters. For much of the movie, for example, we're led to believe that Sally is an uptight sort of girl who likes everything in its proper place. But then there's the scene where she proves to Harry that he could be fooled by a woman faking orgasm. And she loudly and self-consciously fakes one in the middle of a diner full of people. I can't deny that Meg Ryan does a hilarious job with the scene, but after it's over, you're left with no concept of her character. Sally, in other words, becomes as phony as her orgasm. And Crystal's Harry isn't much easier to figure. The review spends a long time calling BS on him being morbid and death-obsessed, says Crystal just doesn't play that off as well at all. And then calls the relationship between Harry and Sally simply incomprehensible. 
He says, Harry is eager to sleep with Sally until he finds after many years that both of them are simultaneously without partners. Then he seems perfectly content to just be friends. What happened? Watching this film, I never had the slightest idea at any point why these people did or did not want to be lovers. I wonder to what extent the film's creators are aware of its Woody-isms and to what degree they feel guilty about ripping Alan off. I would guess that Billy Crystal doesn't much care because his films are usually derivative. Running Scared took off from 48 Hours and Throw Mama from the Train was a knockabout remake of Hitchcock's Strangers on a Train. But I wonder most about Nora Ephron. In the days when she was a media critic for Esquire magazine, I had a lot of respect for her smart and saucy column. And though I only half admire the novel Heartburn and the movie screenplay she's written since, I never would have thought her capable of something as blandly imitative as when Harry met Sally. But after watching this film, I've drastically revised my opinion of Nora Ephron. If I were to hear that she's now appearing in Vegas as an Elvis impersonator, I would not be surprised. You know what? Fuck this review. But uh, <laughs> but you know what? Actually, you bring up something that I really wanted to talk about, which is the Annie Hall of it all, right? Because it's so easy to compare this movie to Annie Hall. Very much. And they are. It is true. She does wear like the bowler hat, the baggy pants. But I, I think there's something so drastically different. Woody Allen is like Larry David in the sense of he is someone that no one is like, right? He is, I don't want to get into, I don't want to detour into a larger conversation about Woody Allen because we've already done that successfully on this show. I just want to talk about his personality, right? That's not people that we know. I mean, it has elements of things, right? This movie separates itself from that because this movie while taking place in New York, isn't about New Yorkers. Yes, they live in New York, but they're not from New York. They don't have that energy. And again, it's a more universal film. I think that Annie Hall is such a Woody Allen movie. It's so built in his own background and his own experiences. I love, love Annie Hall. But these two films stand on their own two feet. Just because it's a comedian and an attractive woman falling in love in New York does not mean that they're the same film. And uh, and I think they can both coexist, and I think I can love them both. But they're, I mean, they're drastically different films. I mean, yes, there are tropes that we're always going to have in romantic comedies. Best friend and this. But I, I would argue that, like, Diane Keaton, who is masterful in that film, we talked about this, she's almost doing it at a, around Woody Allen, like what we were talking about. Like, she is, like, this movie is much more fairly weighted on both of the characters. And they, I think, um, you know, she does a lot of laughing at Woody Allen and not that I love Diane Keaton, so I'm not slamming Diane Keaton, but there are certain things that she does that I think people take and, and pull over that this movie steps out of the trap of. Yeah. And I, I would say, I feel that when you watch When Harry Met Sally, it's pretty clear that Meg Ryan had recently watched Eddie Hall. You know, she does a mm-hmm. little bit of like the yes, yes. Oh yes. Kind of like yeah. coming to herself bits, but still, you know, I mean, Rob Reiner and Billy Crystal were extremely mad about the comparisons. You know, Rob Reiner was like, so nobody can make a film in New York about relationships unless they're Woody Allen. That's insane. And Billy Crystal said, you know, you make a film in New York. And if it's a comedy, if it's about love and it includes old songs, then it's a Woody Allen movie. I see the comparison, but I don't like it. And I think, if anything, When Harry Met Sally has more, has an equal amount of shades of the apartment and nobody's calling it out because it's not as recent. Nobody's noticing it, you know, and, and Woody Allen then also comes from the apartment, you know, like if we're going to get into the question of like influences, that's incredibly tangled and it goes on forever. And I wonder like, what do we even make about the fact that, you know, the ending here is very different. I mean, yes, like at first Nora Ephron 
really believed that this episode, that this movie had to end with them just becoming friends and they couldn't ever really become a happy couple. Yeah, I mean, it it feels like it's built to do that, but you don't want it to do that. But you don't want to do that. And I'm happy when they come, they they wind up together. They wind up together. They don't wind up together in Annie Hall. Like, does that say that we're more optimistic when this film comes out? We want them to be together. Like, is it just that we like them more? We just really... I don't really ever care if Woody Allen winds up happy at the end of a film, but I love that Billy Crystal winds up happy. He yearns it. I think what this movie does is it's hopeful about love. When you find somebody that you really connect with, you should be with them. Annie Hall, they shouldn't be together. I like them. I like that movie. That's not a good couple. That wasn't a good couple. They grew apart. He's condescending to her. There's not the same condescension in this relationship. I'm not like I'm not trying to knock down one for the other, but I think it's lazy. Because if you look at any, if you look at the bones of every romantic comedy, they're ultimately the same. And it's very easy. Like, guy, this, bop, 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 bop. You know, how many romantic comedies are like in L.A.? It's like New York is a beautiful place. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, I don't know. Like, there are these things. It's the backdrop is similar. Because what can happen in a romantic comedy? They wind up together or they don't. You know, where's the variation? But they're relatable in their own way, even if they're not going to end with they're going to end with one of two things. You can't say it's like a Nolan movie where it's going to wind up. Uh, the couple yes. was really inside each other's skin. And then one of them is going to go to Mars and then become like a infinitesimal speck. I just I just feel like and we can have this debate long and hard. I want to continue this debate uh, online and, and, and hopefully when we do our wrap up show on Twitch. But the idea that. We can tell different stories. Like, I think it was Rob Reiner who might have said this on Larry King. Like, basically, or or maybe it was uh, Carl Reiner, actually. So there got my Reiner's confused. But, like, there are only seven stories to tell, right? And, you know, and so it's variations on those themes. And I think that this is a very... uh, capable variation on a theme that Woody Allen did, that Pillow Talk did, that The Apartment did. They all are unique. And what makes them all unique is the test of time. And at the end of the day, we're still talking about Harry Metzeli. And at the end of the day, we're still talking about Annie Hall. And if they were the same movie, we wouldn't be. And I think it's a reason why, yes, people like Sleepless in Seattle and, and You Got Mail, but it's not on the same level as this. And we'll see. Now, although when the yeah. AFI did their top 10 romantic comedies of all time, mm-hmm. um, here was their list. Number one was City Lights. Mm-hmm. Uh, two was Annie Hall. Three was It Happened One Night. Four was Roman Holiday. Five was The Philadelphia Story, which would make you think, why don't you have Roman Holiday on the list instead of The Philadelphia yeah. Story? And then uh, When Harry Met Sally was six. So that's a fairly high placement. And then after that, you get Adam's Rib, Moonstruck, Harold and Maude, and Sleepless in Seattle. Too many old films on that list, in my opinion. Uh, because I also think we should represent a different types of times and people. Like there, There's a lot of black and white on that list, or there's a lot of Cary Grant on that list. Like To me, it's like, look, I can tell you that Garden State hit me in a way. Like I was going through something when I saw Garden State. I'm not afraid to say I love Garden State when I saw it. I haven't seen it again. And maybe I would make fun of myself for liking Garden State now. I don't care. But I loved it when I saw it. Romantic comedies, whether they're about breakups or getting together, they hit you in a way where you are at how you've seen them. If it's high school, if it's college, if it's after a breakup. And they are intensely personal. And there is a handful that rise to the top. Like 10 Things I Hate About You, I hear spoken about as one of the seminal romantic comedies. I that that passed me. I didn't get that one. Um, but I didn't see it. You know, so uh, I'm open to seeing it. But uh, I, I would not need... mind if that was one of our uh, audience picks. That'd be curious. I wouldn't mind either. But I'm always down to see a good romantic comedy, a good one. Like, a, give me a good one. And I'm I'm in. 
Well, lucky for you, we're going to have a lot of romances to come. I can't wait. So I get, we've been talking about this, like, but does this go up into space? I think it's a very high contender for going up in space. I yeah. think of all the films you've even done in season two, to me, it's one of the higher contenders to go up into space, which is, that's a good, it's a good ass list, but this is a good ass film. Uh, you know, I, it's so hard. It's so hard for me to break apart, uh, my personal, my, my DNA is made up by this movie. It is. It just like, mm -hmm. I, I, there are lines, there are ways I think about men and women, uh, or the way I did when I was dating and mm -hmm. all these sort of things. I'd still kill for Meg Ryan's hair today. Oh my God. She's great. Uh, anyway, I would just say. Yes, I want to put this in space. I want to watch, I want to live in a world where if I have 100 films, this is one of the 100 films in there. And uh, and I also want to have Annie Hall on that list too. I don't mind. I don't mind having both of them on the list. And I know we've talked about, I don't even know if Annie Hall's on our 40, I forget at this point. But like, I can revisit all these movies and find individual joy from them because it, it actually activates different parts of me. Agreed. I mean, the truth is, Love is our most universal story. It's more universal than a Vietnam story. Like love is the universal thing that we can relate to. So I think it should at least have as many, we should at least have as many romantic movies as we have war films. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, Amy, this has been a fascinating conversation, conversation long time coming that we've been able to break down this movie. That was so, uh, such a joy to watch. And uh, I also want to like reach out to people who have not seen it. And let's say like, I want to see what you think about it too. Like, I, cause I am curious about that. Like if, it, if you're walking in plain Jane uh, and seeing it, what do you, what do you think about this yeah. movie? Um, and if you and do adore it and you want to hear a clip of what even happens to them afterwards, you know, from their interviews that they're doing at the end of the film, yeah. here's a cut of Harry and Sally describing their honeymoon. It was a lovely honeymoon. It really was. Harry, surpri he surprised me with a honeymoon. He had, he, he planned the entire thing without, without, me knowing anything he gave gave me the choice of three bags to pack i packed all three he picked one and we brought it it was great it was like a mystery honeymoon, mystery honeymoon. yeah and really it, we saw it out in the greek islands on santorini we were, we were we had a boat yeah we had this yacht Mykonos. it was great it was really beautiful with beautiful. a captain and a crew sunny and a cook. sunny sunny the entire yeah. time great time of year to go it was great i got sick there i got very uh, something horribly ill something bit me or or i ate I don't know what it was. Something you gotta his watch. His whole body was just bent over the side of the bent. boat. I mean, wonderful tan on his back. <laughs> I just had the really. Oh, I was just over the side the whole time. I left a chum slick in a Mediterranean. That's eat. scary. Cousteau <laughs> I mean, was doing a special or something on that. <laughs> we don't know what that was that we found. I don't know. But it was it was really uh, good. It was really romantic. beautiful there, wasn't it? Yeah, I was happy to get home. Oh, I love that. I never heard that. And by the way, just to call that out, I love those little interview segments, which are actually based on real interviews that Rob Reiner did. And then he hired actors to act them out. And those scenes are great. Yeah. And, you know, speaking to like just the honesty of those films, I mean, like those stories are performed by actors, but they're all based on real stories that they found interviewing people about their love life and their relationships. You know, the opening story, um, the one about the couple who like she walks into the room, he's immediately like, I'm going to marry that girl. That actually happened to a man named um, Sal Horn, who's uh, Alan Horn, you know, the big executive here. He was at yeah, Warner yeah, Brothers now yeah. at Disney. That's his dad. That's his dad's story. Oh, wow. That's actually my grandparents, too. The, like, my dad's dad said he saw my grandmother in high school. He saw her walk down the stairs into the hallway, and he was like, I'm going to marry that girl. And he did. And that story means a lot to us and our family. And, you know, I think these little interstitials, they, they kind of add to the idea that all of us have our own love story that's worth telling. I mean, even Carl Reiner, you know, Rob Reiner's dad. 
And Estelle Reiner, you know, his wife, who we have in that great scene, you know, delivering the line, I'll have what she's having. When you hear Carl Reiner describe his love affair with his wife, you know, in this interview that he did right before he died uh, last summer during the pandemic, even that sounds like it would fit in this movie. Alvin Ake is where I met my wife. She was an assistant scenic designer. And uh, we met, fell in love. And I was 20 at the time and she was 28. And people said, this is not a match. Well, it was the kind of match that didn't work because it only worked for 65 years. And if she didn't pass on, we'd still be working on it. So I love that. I love that these little interstitials feel welcoming to us. And really the only reason why they had them done with actors is just because they realized that even when these people had great stories, when you put them on camera, they got nervous and couldn't tell them in the right story way. They just started rambling about other things. So they're like, oh, if we want to really preserve these stories, we have to have actors do them. And the actors are amazing. So much so that you feel like they are actually, they are the couples. Like I found out that they weren't the couples. Like what? Oh man. Yeah. They seem uh, so real. The fact that there's some of them that kind of don't acknowledge what's even happening. Like the one guy who's sort of staring off into the distance. Maybe yeah. he has dementia. Like there's, they really cast them with a lot of intelligence. They feel so real. All right. So Amy, next week we're going to do something a little bit different. We're actually going to a foreign film, getting a little bit of a different look uh, of, uh, of love and relationships in a film that I've never seen before called The Chunking Express, which I'm very excited about. Oh, you're going to get all swoony. Uh, my version of love is that I promised my boyfriend we would not do a couple's goals series without doing this film. So this is me I making love it. him happy. <laughs> well, no, it's good. And by the way, there are different couples. And we tried We tried really hard. I mean, it's so hard to parse this. And that's why we were like, originally, it was just going to be, uh, you know, just going to be romantic comedies. And we wanted to expand it. And I think we've done a good, fair job of trying to show a lot of different types of couples. So I'm, I am excited about it all. I'm excited for you to watch it. All right. Well, I'll see you all next week. Uh, and uh, this is uh, great. So keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you think about Harry and Sally. Maybe even let's see some first timers out there talking about it. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.